Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, the 2017 congressional delegation had its official swearing in. Congress is open for business, and the leadership wasted no time getting down to the business of voting to repeal the Affordable Care Act as promised. Well, the president-elect is not sworn in until January 20th, Mark, but there certainly is already a lot of action on the books on the promise to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. Republican Senator Mike Enzi of Wyoming introduced a resolution just hours after the new Congress convened that will serve as the vehicle to try and repeal much of President Obama's signature health care law. Republicans have to use a budget resolution to undo the Affordable Care Act because they don't have enough votes to overcome a Democratic filibuster. So lawmakers will be able to repeal the parts of the law that have budget and tax implications. Essentially, they get to gut the law without fully repealing the entire piece of legislation by removing all the subsidies that are in place to help low- and middle-income people buy health insurance and getting rid of taxes on such things as medical devices, insurance companies, and wealthy individuals. But in the meantime, there are still many legal and legislative questions that need answering. So we invited today's guest, Professor Timothy Jost, to weigh in with us. Professor Jost is the Emeritus Professor of Law at Washington and Lee University School of Law. He's a frequent contributor to health affairs and really one of the nation's leading scholars on health law and health policy. Lori Robertson also weighs in, the managing editor of factcheck.org, always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter because we love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Timothy Jost in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare with this week's headline news. I'm Arianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. On the heels of repeal, as promised, the newly sworn-in Republican-controlled Congress ushered in their vision of the future by introducing a bill to repeal the Affordable Care Act. The so-called American Health Care Reform Act of 2017 seeks to establish state-based high-risk pools, increase health savings accounts, and allow insurance sales across state lines. The bill was sponsored by the conservative Republican Study Committee, promising this is only round one in what will be their concerted effort to, quote, wrest health care out of the hands of bureaucrats. There are other replace measures emerging from different camps within the GOP, some from an extreme of repealing the ACA and replacing it with almost nothing. Other plans from conservative think tanks suggest it would be better to keep Obamacare intact and replace portions of the law that aren't working. One thing the plans all share in common, younger, healthier people would fare better than older, sicker people, and the poor are looking at significant loss of coverage and therefore loss of access to health care. One way millions of the nation's poor gain access to health care is through Planned Parenthood. House Speaker Paul Ryan has put forth a bill that will eliminate hundreds of millions of dollars in funding. Ryan saying the defunding would be fast-tracked and go through as soon as next month. They're approaching the defunding through the measure they're using to gut much of the health care law, budget reconciliation, meaning it would need just a simple majority of senators to pass rather than the 60-vote supermajority. Millions of poor Americans gain a wide degree of health services through Planned Parenthood's affordable clinics, including regular preventive care, cancer screenings and STD screening and treatment. 
Meanwhile, members of the Congressional Democratic Minority are pushing back on a number of points, asking the Independent Congressional Ethics Committee to look into allegations of HHS Secretary nominee Tom Price, who they say profited off legislation he pushed through Congress, benefiting companies in which he had hundreds of thousands of dollars of investments in. The Wall Street Journal last month reported Price bought and sold more than $300,000 in stock in about 40 healthcare, pharmaceutical, and biomedical companies over the past several years, all the while sponsoring and advocating legislation that could influence those companies' shares. In a major health recommendation reversal, the National Institutes of Health is giving the okay for parents of young babies to start introducing peanuts into their diets to stave off the onset of deadly peanut allergies. The move comes after studies show low doses of peanut exposure at a very early age can actually prevent the onset of deadly peanut allergies, which have seen a dramatic rise in recent decades. According to a CDC report, food allergies in children increased 50 percent from 1997 to 2013. Studies show the best time to expose children to allergens is when their immune systems aren't fully formed, which takes a few years, suggesting introducing small amounts of peanut butter into the diets of babies as young as four to six months old, as long as they're eating other solid foods. So want to keep your little peanut allergy-free? Try peanut dosing during their first year of life. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Timothy Jost, Emeritus Professor of Law at the Washington and Lee University School of Law, prolific writer. He's author of Health Law, a casebook used widely at many U.S. law schools. His other publications include Healthcare Coverage Determinations, an International Comparative Study. Professor Jost is a frequent blogger for the renowned journal Health Affairs, providing comprehensive legal analysis of U.S. health reform. Professor Jost is an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine, the American Law Institute, and the American Society of Law and Medicine. He earned his JD with honors from the University of Chicago. Welcome back to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. You were with us in 2013. The Affordable Care Act at that time was undergoing one of its many major legal challenges in the Supreme Court. In a recent health affairs blog, you noted that in wake of the 2016 election, Obamacare is facing a far more dramatic threat. And I'm wondering if you could help our listeners understand the crossroads where where we stand right now. Yes, the Republican leadership in Congress introduced a budget resolution in the Senate that would open the way for repealing many of the provisions of the Affordable Care Act through a simple majority vote. Through the budget reconciliation process, Congress can move forward with making major changes in in laws, and in particular laws that affect the revenues or outlays of the United States government, which much of the Affordable Care Act does, without having to worry about a filibuster. And so with the 52 votes that the Republicans have in the Senate and the overwhelming majority in the House, uh, they could move forward with repeal of the Affordable Care Act. Um, The Republican Study Committee, a group of conservative Republicans in the House, introduced legislation that would take the country in a radically different way in terms of health care access. The Republicans have not come together yet on any concrete suggestion for replacing the Affordable Care Act or for dealing with the 20 to 30 million Americans who would lose coverage through repeal. 
So I think we're heading into a very dangerous time for low and moderate income Americans who do not have coverage through their employers and also for Americans with pre-existing conditions. In some ways, uh, Professor Jost, it does feel like deja vu all over again. You know, back in 2009, uh, we had House Speaker Nancy Pelosi on the show as well. She was one of the legislation's chief architects, and she took a tremendous amount of heat from her GOP opponents at the time by saying publicly, well, sometimes you have to pass laws without being entirely sure what's in them. But it seems like the same thing is coming to pass with this repeal and replace agenda. Very few details are clear about what the replace legislation will look like or when it will happen. So maybe share with us a little more of just your best insights and analysis into what is coming next. What elements of the law can actually be repealed legislatively, as you said, with the budget reconciliation? But what aspects of the law might prove much harder to dismantle? Well, it's ironic that what Nancy Pelosi actually meant, and she has been very, very widely misquoted on this, was that once we passed the legislation, the American people would realize all of the good things that were in the legislation. And what is actually happening now is that we're in a very different situation Mm -hmm. where, in fact, we do not know and cannot know what will be in the replaced legislation because there is no single proposal yet to... Uh, replace the Affordable Care Act. There are a a lot of different proposals, but the Republicans are nowhere close to coming together. The budget reconciliation process is a process through which Congress can address matters that are more than incidentally related to revenues and outlays of the United States government. And so it could address things like the premium tax credits, the Medicaid expansions, the individual and employer mandates. It probably could not address things like the uh, guaranteed issue and guaranteed renewal, the ban on health status underwriting, the ban on gender underwriting, which is very important before the Affordable Care Act. Women almost universally paid more than men for for health coverage. It could not address the ban on pre-existing condition exclusions. Mm So any kind of repeal and replace based on budget reconciliation is going to have a lot of holes in it and probably won't work very well. I think it's generally acknowledged um, that you can't uh, have a ban on pre-existing condition exclusions that will work uh, if you don't have the premium tax credits and something like the individual mandate. What the Republicans are talking about now is uh, what would be called repeal and delay, where they would repeal key provisions at this point and then just say, uh, let's wait a couple of years before we get rid of the premium tax credits, maybe the Medicaid expansion, and see if we can think of something to replace it with. The problem with that is that insurers are not charities and might very well not stick around for a couple of years to find out what the Republicans come up with. So I think we're faced with the potential crash of not just the marketplaces, but the entire individual market, leaving 20 million people without any way of getting health insurance coverage. Let's look at some of the gains under Obamacare. And you've noted that it's not only the 20 million plus uninsured 
uh, people uh, that have gained access. Uh, we're now in the sixth year of the ACA, so you you have some longitudinal data uh, on other gains that have been made. I'm wondering if you can help us understand what some of those gains are that the typical health consumer might not be aware of and how they've transformed the healthcare experience. Sure, and I think everybody knows by this point that the levels of the uninsured, our rates are now at the lowest levels in history. But many of your listeners may not know uh, that improvements in hospital care leading to fewer hospital-acquired infections have saved about 125,000 lives since the ACA was adopted, and expanded coverage is preventing about 24,000 deaths a year. National health expenditures over the 2010 to 2019 period are projected to be $2.6 trillion less than the expenditures that were projected just before the ACA became law. The share of national income for the bottom fifth of the income distribution in the United States has risen by about 18%, while the share of the top 1% has fallen 7% because of the ACA and the administration's tax policy. Coverage has risen for children, young adults, and all age levels, all income levels, all ethnic and racial groups. And expanded coverage has also resulted in improved access to care, with the share of Americans who report not having received medical care due to cost dropping by one-third since 2010. The burden of uncompensated care borne by hospitals has declined by about one-quarter since 2013. The ACA has also helped people with employee coverage, which is the majority of Americans. The number of employees with an annual cap on their out-of-pocket costs has increased by $22 million since the ACA has been adopted. Growth in per-employee costs of employer-based coverage has fallen to 5.6% from the decade before the ACA annual growth to 3.1% since the ACA was adopted. And private sector employment has grown continuously since the ACA was adopted, and the fall in the uninsured rate has not negatively influenced job growth, as some had predicted. So there's just been a lot of, of improvements in quality of care, in reduction of the cost of care, as well as the dramatic gains in access. Well, we recently had Sarah Collins from the Commonwealth Fund on the show, and she was outlining some of the dramatic setbacks that could occur uh, if the repeal goes through, as has been proposed by the GOP leaders. And she quoted several of the Urban Institute studies that also show the repeal of Obamacare leading to more uninsured Americans even than there were prior to the law's passage. But she makes the point that the low-income, vulnerable Americans are the most at risk in the wake of a repeal. And why is that? Why, why is it going to target them particularly? And what's the role that Medicaid plays in all of this? Well, it's unclear exactly what's going to happen with Medicaid. The Medicaid expansions have been very important in expanding coverage to millions of Americans who previously lacked access to health care and played a very important role in bringing down the uncompensated care burden of hospitals the Republican Study Committee proposal would replace the tax credit with a tax deduction. Now, if you're not paying taxes, <laughs> a tax deduction is completely worthless. Right. Uh, this is just a flat-out transfer of income, transfer of access to health care from low-income Americans to high-income Americans. In addition, 
repealing the tax increases on Americans earning more than 200000 a year under the Affordable Care Act would result in literally hundreds of billions of dollars of tax cuts for high-income Americans over 10 years. Even fixed-dollar tax credits would be essentially worthless to low-income Americans because they either would not provide enough money to purchase a health insurance policy or they would only cover a very, very high deductible health insurance policy. It would hit hardest low-income Americans. I think a lot of people don't realize, however, how many other things were in the Affordable Care Act. I mean, there were loan and grant programs Mm -hmm. for people trying to pursue an education Mm -hmm. in health care. There was expanded funding for community public health institutions, of course, closing the donut hole for seniors on, Mm -hmm. on Medicare. So there is a lot in the Affordable Care Act, if it were repealed as a whole, that Americans may never have noticed was there, but would certainly notice if it was gone. We're speaking today with health policy expert Timothy Jost, Emeritus Professor of Law at the Washington and Lee University School of Law. He's also author of Health Law, a casebook used widely at many U.S. law schools and frequent contributor to the noted publication Health Affairs. You know, we um, certainly have alignment on the repeal and replace side with both of the legislative branch and the executive branch in harmony here. And uh, yet we've had a lot of action happening over the last many years at the judicial level as well. We've got a couple of big cases out there. In 2015, Judge Collier ruled that the House Republicans had standing to sue the executive branch uh, over a spending dispute, and the Obamacare administration had been distributing health subsidies in violation of the Constitution. And uh, and what are your thoughts about if that ruling is upheld? But also, are are we going to see a shift on the folks who are supportive of Obamacare? Will we start to see lawsuits on the other side as well? Well, House v. Burwell, I think, is the most immediate threat to the stability of the individual insurance Mm -hmm. market in the United States. Judge Collier held that several billion dollars that are being paid each year to insurers who are required under the Affordable Care Act to reduce the deductibles and coinsurance and copayments. Judge Collier held that there had been no appropriation for those payments, and thus they had to stop. The Obama administration has been vigorously contesting that. The House recently got a delay in that litigation, claiming that the Trump administration may take a different position and the court should wait until February to find out what the Trump administration's position was. If the Trump administration agrees with the House and withdraws the appeal, I think that could, in very quick order, destroy the individual market in the United States. The individual market isn't that important to many of them. And they may just say, forget it, we're leaving. Uh, They certainly wouldn't come back for 2018. And there are some other cases out there. We still have the contraceptive cases. And I would expect that Mm -hmm. we're now going to see possibly dozens of cases Mm -hmm. filed challenging the Trump administration. Well, Professor, you talked about the jeopardy of the Medicaid expansion, the potential privatizing of Medicare. Remembering back to the summer of 2010, where people were coming out in droves to speak for and against the legislation, including the seniors who would come and demand the government to get their hands off of uh, their health insurance, Medicare. What's the political risk when we make the, the laundry list of all who are likely to be very angry 
at loss of benefits. We have the denial for pre-existing conditions. We have people literally dying in the streets from opioid overdose and what coverage there is could easily slip away from the most needy people. It seems like a potential for enormous political risk. What's your take on that and what's likely to happen? Well, that is an issue of concern. I think polling shows that a lot of the lowest income Americans are simply discouraged. And I think a lot of people also voted for Donald Trump because they really were dissatisfied with the current political situation and wanted a change, but didn't really believe that he was going to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, under which many of them are, are covered. If you look at the things that the administration is talking about doing in terms of immigration, in terms of climate change, in terms of, of judicial appointments, many of those are things where they will affect voters over a long period of time. On the other hand, if you cut off someone's insurance coverage, it's going to be days right. before they realize right. what's happened. Uh, and so I do think that there could be a tremendous political backlash. It's generally accepted that the Democrats um, really suffered because of misunderstandings of the Affordable Care Act as much as, be, as what the Affordable Care Act actually did. But now uh, the health care system belongs to the Republicans, and they're going to have to take responsibility for all of the things that are going to go wrong. You know, one of the strategies is certainly to put up the barricades. The other is to try to find the seam of opportunity. What do you, what do you think there may be some commonality? Because clearly, I think everybody admits that it was an imperfect piece of legislation, like all of our major pieces of legislation. Do you think there's any common ground to be found? Uh, chart out for us areas of, of commonality that might hopefully find the light of day searching for ways to improve upon the legislation once we get past the, the repeal aspect of it? Well, I think that there are actually substantial grounds for working together bipartisanly in, in health policy. And the recently adopted Cures Act, I think, is an example mm -hmm. of that. Yep. Um, the, the, the MACRA Act, which was adopted last year, I think, across the whole range of of issues like uh, investment in, in uh, health care research, in quality improvement, in the cost control. I think there, there is a lot of common ground. Unfortunately, in the area of access to health care, I think that the, at this point uh, the country is deeply divided, or at least the political parties are. Actually, I think the country is far less divided than the political parties are. The, Recent polling showed that only about a quarter of Americans want to repeal the Affordable Care Act, and almost half want to either keep it or expand it. But the proposals that we're seeing, I think, uh, would, would, would pretty radically shift the focus of access from trying to uh, provide access for the lowest-income Americans to trying to improve uh, and expand on the wealth and income of the highest income Americans. And I just have a hard time seeing the parties coming together on that. Um, I, I would say that one of the problems of the Affordable Care Act is that it did not do enough for middle-income Americans whose income was too high to mm -hmm. uh, uh, qualify for the subsidies that it provided. And if the um, the uh, a replacement plan 
provides uh, fixed dollar tax credits for higher income Americans in the individual market, it would probably to some extent help address that issue. So that there, that may be something uh, where there could be some commonality. Mm-hmm. But I think a proposal like this uh, House Republican study group that would offer nothing to low-income Americans and a great deal of, to high-income Americans is, is not going to get bipartisan support. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We've been speaking today with Timothy Jost, Emeritus Professor of Law at the Washington and Lee University School of Law, and frequent contributor to the noted industry publication, Health Affairs. You can learn more about his work by going to the Health Affairs blog at healthaffairs.org slash blog. Professor Jost, thank you so much for joining us again on Conversations on Healthcare. And thank you very much for inviting me. Conversations on healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? President elect Donald Trump claimed that former President Bill Clinton called the Affordable Care Act, quote, crazy, and that Minnesota Governor. Governor Mark Dayton said the law, quote, is no longer affordable. Did they really say that? Not exactly. Both comments are lifted out of context. Trump made his claim on Twitter to support his argument that the Affordable Care Act, quote, doesn't work and provides, quote, lousy health care. He has vowed to repeal and replace the ACA, and the Republican-controlled Congress has already taken a step toward repeal. As for Clinton calling the ACA crazy, the former president made those comments while campaigning for his wife in Flint, Michigan on October 3rd. But the fuller context shows he wasn't calling the entire law crazy, and he was blaming Republicans for refusing to make changes to improve it. Clinton said that it was, quote, the craziest thing in the world that those who buy their own insurance but make too much to get subsidies were facing escalating premiums on the individual market. He went on to say that his wife, Hillary, supported allowing those people to buy into Medicare and Medicaid as a way to fix the problem. Similarly, Minnesota Governor Mark Dayton called proposed individual market rate increases in his state, quote, severe, and said, quote, the reality is the Affordable Care Act is no longer affordable to increasing numbers of people. Dayton went on to blame a, quote, totally deadlocked Congress for failing to make, quote, necessary changes or improvements to the law to make it more affordable for those unable to qualify for Medicaid or government subsidies. So Trump leaves out key context from both Clinton's and Dayton's remarks to make his point. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. 
When longtime IBM executive Sharon Linder left the corporate world, she thought she would ease into semi-retirement. But then breast cancer diagnoses for her mother and two sisters shifted her focus. She watched as all three of them went through multiple surgeries and treatments, wearing the ubiquitous Johnny, the hospital gowns that tie in the back and leave patients often feeling vulnerable and exposed during time when they are also scared and uncomfortable during their treatments. The hospital gown was never meant to close in the back. It was meant to make it easy for you to go to the john. And so when you put it in the front, it really doesn't close. The former corporate executive decided that the one in eight women going through breast cancer treatment needed a power suit of their own to navigate this challenging experience. And she launched her own research project into which fabrics and which designs might provide a better alternative to the standard hospital gown, but one that would also be an easy addition to hospital laundering services. We came up with a fabric that, you know, he would throw in the washer and dryer for like two weeks nonstop. So the fabric we came up with is a a waffle weave fabric, but it's a knit. So the feel of it is very much like a cotton cashmere that is just so soft, you just don't want to take it off. She called her invention Jane's, as opposed to Johnny's, creating a gown that thousands of users have called comfortable, stylish, and a vast improvement from their predecessors. And they fit people in a comforting way. It's, it, you know, you're totally covered. It's a little V-neck crossover at the very top, and it goes all around your body. And she developed the gown in time for her own cancer diagnosis and was able to see her invention put to her own good use. James did give me really a leg up. I think that I felt better about all of my treatments. Just feeling like I looked better. When you think you look better, you feel better. Dozens of hospital systems across the country are adopting her gown design, which you can also order online for women who've received a recent diagnosis of breast cancer. And even nursing mothers are using her product. Jane's, a hospital gown designed for enhancing the female patient experience, providing comfort, dignity, easier access during challenging procedures, or just providing an easier experience for newly breastfeeding mothers, now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.